hear a little bit of, of about Scratchy when you talk, talk Megan. Megan. Mm-hmm. 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 Like, just, just, just say, say your ABCs, ABCs real quick. Just so I can get into something where I can adjust things. Okay. Sound good to me. A, B, C, D, oh, E, F, G. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Related to Geeks podcast. We are here again at Tinker's Tavern. As we are on the first Monday of every month, we invite you to join us for future episodes. And we're going to get started right away here. Uh, and I did not bring dice to, to uh, roll because I'm a terrible gamer. So I'm just going to come up with a first player rule that the oldest player goes first. <laughs> So, Dad, that means you, and I, I think that's no secret here. Um, I'm, not, I'm not revealing anything about you, um, but you you go ahead and tell us what's on your geek agenda lately. Well, the last two Fridays, we uh, played If You Play, You Win, right here at Tankar's Tavern in these chat rooms. We did two science fiction one-offs. The first was uh, in the... Universe Unleashed gaming system written by Robo G, who is a Gamer Plus gamer, and he was the DM for that. And uh, it was science fiction. We were on an asteroid, and we ended up being, like, teleported or transported or something around another star. That's the cliffhanger at the end there. And then last Friday, Kirsten uh, hosted Star Wars Escape from Moshuda, and we escaped. Did you do so efficiently, though? We killed, <laughs> we killed the dragon guy who was a Wookiee pelt dealer and a slaver, so we could steal his ship. We bought the repair part that he needed out from under him, and then he fought us and we killed him. But his ship was still clamped, so we set his corpse in the pilot chair, and I cut a hole in the back of his head and moved his lips. Well, I said, oh, Wookiees, Wookiees, I got to get out of here, unclamp me. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was gross. <laughs> <laughs> so I had recently played a game um, of Dread to where it was a similar, like, you have to escape situation. And my character's motivation was that they were always on task. That was their main character trait. They were always on task and always pushing forward. And I managed to take what should have been a four-hour campaign and finish it in like an hour and a half because my (laughs) character was always pushing everybody forward. And the DM did not know what to do with me. (laughs) All right, Carl, you're up. My geek agenda is is nothing but arkansas rpg con and only <laughs> arkansas rpg con uh so arkansas rpg con is a convention that my wife and i run and it is this weekend and so uh i mean everything in my field of vision right now is arkansas rpg con um you know i have been doing some gaming lately i got to game last friday with my uh, homeschool game club i homeschool my kids we run a gaming club at a local game store called game goblins and uh, homeschool kids get together uh every friday and we typically play old school dungeons and dragons and we did that uh last friday and we had 12 uh kids playing old school 1980s dungeons and dragons and it was fantastic yay so i for my geek agenda uh 
have realized something that I didn't know I've wanted my entire life, but I've wanted my entire life. Um, and it's like fully realized now. I realized last year that it was something that I've wanted my entire life, but couldn't do it last year. But this year we did a trunk or treat at my church and I got to realize my, my goal from last year, this year, which was to turn my truck. I drive an old Ford F-150 into a giant dragon head. Um, and I have visual aids for mine. I'm going to drop them into the chat here. See how long that takes to upload. Um, but yeah, that's my my truck as a dragon head. And I'm sure dad can figure out a way to link that in the future uh, uh, recording and everything like that. But yeah, I it wasn't as cool as I wanted it to be, but it was a way, way cooler than I thought it was going to be as I was putting it together because the wind was awful. Um, and every time I put something on, it would blow off and it was just a nightmare. And I was, I was very upset in the, in the putting it together stages, but I did get it together and I am excited to add to it for future years. But yeah, I got to make my truck a giant dragon head for a trunk or treat. Um, and then in addition to that, I got to dress as a Viking. Originally I was going to dress as a maiden and have the, the trick-or-treaters come and, like, save me from the giant dragon. But then it turned out to be, like, freezing temperatures. And so uh, Viking was my backup plan for that. And so I'm going to attach a picture of me as a Viking just because. Uh, but, yeah, Vikings dress a whole lot more warmly than maidens do. Or at least the maiden that I was going to dress up as. Because <laughs> I just had a light, like, summery dress for my maiden. <laughs> so how did you do the flame? In the dragon's mouth. So the flame is literally just like that, those rolls of like crepe paper and you tape it to a box fan. And I just had the box fan blowing the, the, oh, okay. the flames. Oh, and so I had I... a light source in there. And then I had like the eyes are just like those plastic, like fake crystal trays. Uh -huh. And then they have just a glowing red light source behind them. I love that. I love the flames. Um, I wish I could have uh, seen them actually in motion then, because they were actually moving, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, cool. The flames are definitely what sold it. If it if it didn't have the flames, it would just be like, oh, you attached like fangs to your truck, cool. But once you had the flames, then people automatically knew what it was. So, fire breathing dragon for the win, and hopefully I, I can add to it in future years and make it even cooler. I love it. I was a big fan of it as well. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and get into our topic for this episode, which is fantasy and science fiction reads. And I believe we also have an audience participant who's going to chime in from time to time. We have Mast and Danger in the in the chat, and he's he's popping in right now. Yep. All right. I'm, good. I I'm, I'm good. glad I got the gender correctly because I wasn't sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, like I said before, I am in some ways overprepared for this, in some ways underprepared, because I didn't like make any notes or think about exactly what I was going to talk about during this. But at the same time, uh, I got back into reading about two years ago now, because I did the thing that everybody does where they read some in high school and then they go to college. And I minored in English. So I did a lot of reading that was required reading. And that put me off reading for a long time after college. 
So it took me a while to get back into it. But since getting back into it a couple years ago, I have read about 250 books. Um, so that's where I feel overprepared. Where I feel underprepared is like I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. Because <laughs> a lot of those, a heavy percentage were sci-fi and fantasy. I'm overprepared. I've read, over I've read mostly science fiction and fantasy my whole life. And believe me, that's a long time. Mm-hmm. I just don't know how to narrow it down. <laughs> I mean, it's genre stuff. Well, for me, I am kind of in the, the phase of reading where i'm, I'm relearning yeah i'm relearning what i like because the last time i read for myself was in high school and believe it or not my tastes uh, have changed and my uh maturity approaching books has changed and my understanding of literature has changed and so when i first started reading again my default was to go back to young adult books because that's what i used to read um, and there's some good young adult books out there, but it took me a while to get into the adult fantasy. And that's definitely where I find some of my most enjoyable reading. And I definitely read more fantasy than science fiction, but I do enjoy science fiction as well. Yeah, I want to mention I am going to be completely useless on the science fiction side of this conversation. <laughs> I, I don't even know if I could name you a science fiction book I've read. Luckily, you have me here, and I love science fiction. Awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> Fantastic. I, I love ways. <laughs> fantasy. I love fantasy, and I am very, I don't want to say very, I'm pretty well read in fantasy literature. Um, but uh, science fiction is just, for some reason, it's never it's never clicked with me the same way. There's not enough swords and elves. <laughs> there's not enough. There's not enough uh, wandering wizards and and uh, 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 I don't know uh, mercenary warriors uh, fighting dragons. I guess, and I know that can happen in science fiction, but when it does, you know what? I'm not into that either. <laughs> <laughs> but Carl, don't forget Isaac Asimov. That's fair. I, <laughs> I, I have I have at least uh, uh, some some experience with Isaac Asimov, and I mean I mean I mean I've 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 read fantasy or science fiction literature for sure, but it's just not it's not something that that sticks in my mind the same way that that fantasy does. Have you read Frankenstein? I have read Frankenstein. See, you're good. You're golden. <laughs> <laughs> Two classics under your belt, Asimov and Frankenstein. <laughs> well, so speaking of Frankenstein, and it is the beginning of, of science fiction, that's, uh, you know, I mean, arguably. Obviously, you can make arguments. It's not whatever. I'm not here to, to fight a war. But, uh, uh, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is considered at least the beginning of modern science fiction by, by a large amount of people. And I, that's something I've always been very interested in, is going back to the beginning. And so for fantasy literature, obviously you go back to myths. You go back to the, the ancient Norse and ancient Greeks and, and 
Arthurian legend and all of these old stories that have certainly have huge impact on the way that we consume and read fantasy literature. But the first authors to kind of take and shape that into their own kind of made up fantasy narratives that are definitely not myths. They are definitely pretend um, outside of stuff like uh, Greek tragedies and Shakespeare and stuff like that uh, uh, is, uh, I would say, William Morris, George MacDonald, uh, these very uh, 1800s fantasy authors that sort of provided all of this influence for people like Tolkien and Dunsany and Lewis. Uh, And I have, uh, you know, that's something that I started doing when I started becoming this uh, avid reader is saying like, well, how far back does this go? And I want to go to there. And I'm super interested in the myths and the, and the legends as well. And Gilgamesh and Beowulf and all of those narratives are, are deep within my wheelhouse. But it's something about taking that and saying, you know what, we're not, uh, we're not telling a mythic story. We're pretending and writing it down that that I feel like is an actual change in the way that that fiction um, is presented. And it's the idea of like, I'm making up fantasy and I'm going to tell this story of made up fantasy and I don't have to frame it as mythology, even though that's all made up fantasy, too. I don't have to frame it that way. I can just say I'm making up a cool story that that has some wizards in it. Definitely. And science fiction, uh, the main uh, boundary that you have is there's a array in science fiction from uh, your super hard science stuff to stuff that is more about what if we had this technology and what uh, scenarios and social changes or whatever would come from that. And then you have an entirely separate genre of science fiction uh, that I like to call uh, fake historical, where it's stuff like Honor Harrington, where it's literally historical events, but in space. So my big thing with science fiction, and I think a lot of big issues with finding a good entry point in the science fiction is that a lot of the classic science fiction stories the the most noted ones are written less by authors and more by really big science nerds so they're really cool if you like the science but sometimes the plot or the narrative or the characters fall a little short compared to people who are authors primarily and then just kind of you know do the the science fiction stuff secondarily and that's where things like Asimov can sometimes be harder to read. If, if you want uh, a good recommendation, a, a good starting science fiction series, I'd actually recommend Martha Wells' Murder Dot or Murderbot Diaries, uh, short story collections, and they're they're brilliant. I I love them so much. I could literally spend our entire time here talking about them. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm I'm adding to my TBR right now. I haven't read them yet, but they are on my list. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they um, just got they just went up a notch on my list. <laughs> probably near future now. Okay. Um, the gist of them is it follows a security drone that is basically a robot made around human tissue 
um, that has hacked itself so it doesn't have to follow orders and uses uh, its freedom to uh, watch soap operas rather than, you know, try to escape or anything, who is then forced kind of into a hero role when circumstances make it so that uh, a normal robot would have turned on its clients and murdered them. I have two vectors off of that. The first is Isaac Asimov, who besides doing iRobot did a series of robot detective adventures, including humanoid type, humanoid looking robots. And one of the uh, protagonist ladies in one of his stories was actually having an affair with the, with her robot. So that was groundbreaking at the time. Um, but now I'm reading the questionable content web comic, um, which is all about robots having affairs with humans and humans having affairs with robots. So these days you can't throw a stone without someone having an affair with some non-human thing, be it <laughs> robots or vampires or what, whatever it may be. And I'm I'm not here to judge people, but yuck. <laughs> 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 the truth of the matter is that we know in interstellar space female humans will be eminently desirable boys <laughs> especially in schlock <laughs> do I got um, I don't care if they're having uh, sex with aliens as long as they're not having gay sex with aliens. <laughs> <laughs> now, how do you even define that? You know, I don't, I don't know. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, man. I have seen things. Uh, <laughs> now, now you're going to have to make me go dig up the cover I saw a while back. <laughs> We're so deep in the bog already. Oh my goodness. 20 minutes in. And we're making hyper controversial statements flippantly as jokes. Wow. All right. All right. And you thought, and you, thought you were going to be the outrageous one on this podcast. Give me a moment. <laughs> Everyone, back up. <laughs> I didn't think nothing. Oh, um, you know. Yeah. Yuck. <laughs> uh, okay, so some science fiction that I have read. I'm just going to throw out some titles because I got my good re reads open. Um, so I read Sleeping Giants by Sylvain Nouvelle. Um, this is the first in a trilogy. And um, it is basically... Uh, parts of a uh, giant machine, uh, think Gundam kind of style machine, are found underground and are believed to be alien technology. And they're the humans that have discovered it are piecing it together and putting it together and learning how to pilot it. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, it's done in all like official document log style. Um, and I listened to the audiobook on that one. Um, 
and was really excited about it when I read it and was immediately going to jump into the second book. And that was about eight months ago. So that's how I read. Um, <laughs> but I enjoyed that one. Uh, and then The Prey of Gods by Nikki Dryden. Uh, the only way I can explain Prey of Gods is it's kind of like um, a less dense American gods set in Africa. Um, it really has that same feel. It pulls a lot from folk tales, but then it also has modern spins and it has robots, has all the things that you want. Um, and I purely picked it up because it had a creepy girl on the cover and I was just like, cool, creepy girl. I'm going to read that book, but it's really good. On contemporary science fiction authors, I like, uh, China Mayville. She's quite amazing. Um, uh, also, uh, read The Seven Eves. I found The Seven Eves to be quite good. Uh, for some reason, it's Neil. I've, his last name's slipping my mind. Uh, famous science fiction author. Um, wrote Seven Eves and many other. Uh, maybe American Gods. Who wrote American Gods, Megan? That's that's Neil Gaiman. Yeah, Neil Gaiman wrote Seven Eves. Okay. I'm yeah. not familiar with that one. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, Neil Stevenson, possibly? Neil Stevenson, yeah. Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah, long, I was about to say. Seven, now I see it. Now I know it based on how the title title's formatted. You saying the title didn't, mm -hmm. didn't register, but actually seeing the title, yeah, I'm familiar with that book. I have not read that, but yeah. Neil Gaiman's one of my favorite authors, so the fact that you mentioned a book by him that I didn't know didn't make sense to me, but... Yeah. <laughs> um... I'm a big fan of Jim C. Hines' Janitors of the Post-Apocalypse novels. They're hysterical, and they're also really well-written. Cool. Uh, they're, the basics of it are aliens um, found a post-apocalyptic Earth and have been re-uplifting humans. Um, the main character is a janitor on a spaceship. Um, it, it's got very Titan AE vibes, but, uh, it's, it's so good. It's hysterical. What else do I got in here? I read through the first of the, um, Imperial Ratch, or however you pronounce that, books that are about a AI. It's, it's almost, it hits that weird verge of, well, uh, Clark's law, you know, the because the technology is so advanced that, um, like the civilization is run by a a god uh, of a, an artificial intelligence god, essentially. One of the main themes of the first book is how the main character, who used to be like. 40 people because she was a ship AI is now down to her last body and how alone she feels because of that. That is super uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> the more I think about it, the more I'm just like, whoa. <laughs> I just finished reading a pool Anderson um, where there's a, 
it ends with the guy being the last man on earth and he's going crazy at the very end of the story. Yeah, that'll do it to you. <laughs> um, in the context of a of an AI being godlike, uh, one young adult series that I did really enjoy, um, or I say I really enjoy, the third book is either just out today or about to come out. Um, but that's The Ark of the Scythe uh, by Neil Schusterman, another Neil. Um, and it is a basically hyper, hyper intelligent AI has fixed all of the world's problems, solved all illnesses, um, figured out how to reverse aging, done pretty much everything to keep the human race sustainable indefinitely. Um, and as a countermeasure to this to prevent overpopulation and allow resources to be available to as many people as possible um, and not have poverty issues or anything like that. There is a se separate governing body called the Scythes who literally operate independently of this AI um, to kill people. They just choose people to kill, to pick off, um, to keep the population down. Uh, surprisingly good read. Uh, and really, really psychological, as you might expect. Um, but for a, for a young adult, you know, I usually expect them to be pretty digestible, and it is. But it it's a thinker. There's a lot of there's a lot of good discussion points from those books for sure. <coughs> right. Um, on the on the trend of avatar or uh, artificial intelligences. Avatar Tuner, which is in itself decent, but it's an adaptation of a of a video game called Digital Devil Saga, which is hilariously underrated, but also from the PS2 era, so it's hard to mm -hmm. think. Its whole deal is that the um, the main cast are combat AIs who uh, uh, are essentially at ground zero when a virus overtakes, which causes the entire world that they live in to start devouring itself. So it's a very, uh, it's almost like military science fiction if military sci-fi involved cannibalism. It's, <laughs> it's weird and it's interesting and book version of it was better than the uh than the game version of it are you telling me that a book story is better than a video game story i don't buy it <laughs> video game stories are praised for being the best of all the stories <laughs> i have a rule always read the book first and then watch the series or the movie or play the game if you are going to be playing games yeah, I always get really mad when I watch a movie and then realize it was based on a book, and I was like, dang it! <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Backwards! <laughs> See, because if you read the book first, then you have a reason to complain about how the movie is so screwed up compared to the book. Yeah. Well, in this case, it's the other way around, and that's because the book was adapted from the game. The game was the first thing. Mm-hmm. 
I find a lot of times in those scenarios where something came still better. It's just kind of the rule. It depends on thematics and that kind of stuff. I have seen one good adaptation movie. Now I'm I'm shifting us to fantasy. I'm shifting us to fantasy. No, not the Hobbit. The Hobbit. Uh, 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 not that good. But um, <laughs> this is is closely related. Closely related. The uh, it's a fantasy movie. Um, the the Disney's version of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe uh, is a fantastic adaptation. I mean, very very faithful adaptation. Uh, uh, very few changes. Uh, now they they muck it up almost immediately with sequels. Like they're just like, okay, let's mm-hmm. let's change all the stuff now. But the first one is a very faithful adaptation of the first, uh, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, can't really call it the first book unless you can, which you can, but you can't. But you know what I mean. It was the first one written? Sure. There you go. First in publication order counts. Um, Good Omens also really good adaptation. Yeah, good adaptation. Uh, I enjoyed Good Omens, and I read the book first. Yeah. Well, it helped that Neil Gaiman actually wrote the script, too, so. Nailed (laughs) it. (laughs) This is not really science fiction or fantasy, but the the Fight Club film is actually better than the book. That's that's a rarity. (laughs) Tamora Pierce's uh, Portal books literally just yesterday got announced that they were going to get a television adaptation there are so many adaptations in the works everybody's everybody's riding that game of thrones high and they want to they want to come out with the next game of thrones i only bring it up because protector of the small the the uh third um quadrilogy within tortal is literally my favorite fantasy novel Mm -hmm. of all time i still have Um, not read any of her and i feel bad about that <laughs> you should start with uh first test the first of the protector of the small books they're they're so good <laughs> that's good to hear i have it on my shelf uh prepped to read i'm gonna read it and then see if i feel okay with my nine-year-old reading it i imagine i will be but i want to read it first it's such good lessons and it's probably the most realistic of the fantasy novels of that era because it it shows that the main character is dedicated hardworking and she's not able to change everybody's mind there's still holdouts but and she eventually chooses that she's not going to worry about those people she's going to worry about what she's going to do it's i have read and reread this series so many times i've been uh, like quote the best passages to you chapter and verse. It's amazing. <laughs> the Expanse is a really good read, um, but I have to say that the television series is grittier and in some mm-hmm. ways more um, realistic or engaging or gives you a better idea what um, actually life in space may be like. Yeah. So don't hurt yourself. <laughs> I've read the first one, um, and I'd like to get a few books in before I start the series, um, the TV show. Yeah, I, I actually watched yeah. some of the TV first, um, and uh, then went with the books. Yeah, but I enjoyed I, the I first put it one. On hold. Yeah, 
I think I own most of the audiobooks on Audible because I had a bunch of Audible credits that stacked up and then I had to cancel my Audible because I realized I had a whole bunch of Audible credits that kept stacking up and I wasn't using them. So I just bought all of those. Well, I like uh, to listen to Audible uh, audiobook, a book being read when I'm in the car driving somewhere. But other than that, I just have to read. Yeah, I I prefer reading, but there's a lot of times where audiobook timing wise is just it allows me to get through more um, than if I mm. I have a I have a problem with like settling down and focusing in on a book, whereas I can listen to an audiobook while doing other stuff. Um, and it turns out if you have worked professionally as a reporter for many years, you get pretty good at uh, absorbing information just by listening to it. So uh, I don't really have that problem of tuning it out that a lot of people seem to have with uh, audiobooks. Oh, that's the problem. I'll be honest. I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, for audio uh, oh, storytelling, I just listen to T&D actual play podcasts. <laughs> They're free. <laughs> Yeah, most of well, my audiobooks I get free through the library. It's it's kind of insane how much libraries are moving toward that um, and having just a crazy selection available. I mean, I live in a small rural community and I have a huge amount available to me. Um, going back to fantasy novels, has anybody here read Kings of the Wild? Read what? Kings of the Wild. Kings of the Wild. I haven't read it. I haven't read it, but I'm aware of it. It's actually kind of brilliant as a as a top level concept. D and D adventuring party as rock star bands. Hmm. Um. D and D adventuring party. Uh, the kings of the wild are the main focus of the first book, as they're trying to get together. For one last adventure, when uh, the the main character finds out his daughter joined a band and went to somewhere very dangerous, I've heard really good things about it, and it's been it's been one that I've kind of had in the back of my mind to get to eventually. It hasn't been something I've prioritized, but it's definitely been something that the concept has intrigued me for sure. Does it have like? Um the the uh the drama that 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 caps around this kind of like celebrity culture like is there a is there a dio versus ozzy <laughs> type of situation yeah. going that's fantastic <laughs> that's like what i was hoping for uh, i was absolutely like i'm only really into this if it's like make it after metallica which one are you gonna <laughs> sit behind you know uh so <laughs> nice one of, one of and once again it, it kind of blends that Maybe not high level, but definitely retired adventuring party as washed up rock star. <laughs> like one of the early chapters involves them uh, faking the death of the one of their party members who's king and has a, you know, and all he wants to do is go out and swing a sword around um, and has been spent the past 20 years sitting on his ass being king, you know, and he just wants to get back to that adventuring life, man. <laughs> um, You've changed, man. It used to be about the slaying. <laughs> <laughs> that, 
comes up too, where they're making uh, fun of great. of new <laughs> fans because they're fighting in arenas rather than going out in the wild where the adventure's real. That's really good. <laughs> nice, nice. Definite recommend. Well, I'm I'm totally useless in the sci-fi side, but I, I have quite a bit of, of fantasy uh, uh, read. Uh, <laughs> um, so you know, I, I it's weird because I think there's quite a few people who come to Dungeons and Dragons through fantasy literature. They're fantasy literature fans, and they made their way to Dungeons and Dragons. And I did this in reverse. Dungeons and Dragons took me to fantasy literature. Uh, you know, we started playing D&D as kids and then dad put a copy of The Hobbit in my hands and said, you like D&D, read this. And I did. And um, I remember very uh, clearly thinking Bilbo was just a giant wuss. And I was just like, this guy's not cool. Mm -hmm. um, and changing my mind uh, while reading the book, changing my mind about the character while reading the book, like not really being a Bilbo fan at the age of 10 or however old I was when I was reading it um, and changing my mind and saying, you know what? No, I'm on this guy's side. And then really now he's, he's a, a, a one of my uh, favorite literary characters ever written. Um, and uh, you know, I think uh, when you look at fantasy literature, I mean, and I'm a huge Tolkien fan, uh, but it's undeniable that Tolkien changed the landscape of what fantasy literature looked like. Um, and the, I started, because of that, digging into this kind of pre-Tolkien fantasy, and that's going backwards was, was more interesting to me than going forwards, um, and reading stuff like William Morris, and reading stuff like George MacDonald, and then looking at, like, Tolkien contemporaries, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis and... Uh, uh, Paul Anderson around that time, not not quite as uh, uh, contemporary as C.S. Lewis, but still, um, uh, you know, and I, I haven't read a lot of like the stuff that has come after Tolkien's influence was so widely felt. I've read a little bit, uh, you know, I've read David Eddings and uh, uh, there's another one that's heavily influenced, like clearly heavily influenced by Tolkien, Terry Brooks. Um, uh, but um you know, that that's just to me, Tolkien is is this kind of like this uh, feature point in fantasy mm -hmm. literature that kind of you see these effects uh, sprawl throughout. And I think the only other thing like that that really exists that strongly is Dungeons and Dragons. I think Dungeons and Dragons had a huge effect on fantasy literature. Uh, uh, and it, it's interesting that these two kind of parallel to me. Well, I've been reading a lot of rereading and reading some new, uh, a lot of Jack Vance. Um, one of the uh, inspirations for the Dungeons and Dragons game. Mm -hmm. And um, the uh, Jack Vance fantasy is just tremendous and uh, completely different than Tolkien. Uh, more, mm -hmm. more human and magician based and some fae. Um, and one summer I just read, I mean, without trying, I mean, just grabbing books and reading whatever I grabbed, um, one after another turned to be Fae, The Wild Hunt, Feyland, computer games that take you to Fae, Kingdoms, and, you know, the uh, 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 Fairy Hills and uh, uh, Circles and all of that, uh, 
uh, coming out of Irish and Celtic folklore. Um, and some of them based very directly on the folklore and other just kind of like just a little part of the story had some Fey stuff in it, you know. And uh, so I'm, uh, I still think that the, uh, the middle one in the Lioness trilogy, um, uh, I think it's called The Green Pearl, has some of the some of the best fay literature, and it's by Jack Vance. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, of course, the uh, other uh, fantasy uh, literature that uh, inspired Dungeons and Dragons, and written by a science fiction author, Fritz Lieber, um, Fafrin the Gray Mauser. So, and again, um, not not really elves and dwarves. Yeah, these are people I would place as Tolkien contemporaries. Uh, yes. Vance Lieber. I mean, these are these are people who are not quite as affected by that shift in paradigm uh, that Tolkien created. Yes, um, and some same some way. of that was written post Tolkien, but they were still they were writing when Tolkien was writing too. Right. I mean, it's important to remember that uh, Tolkien had that Renaissance. Uh, in the, I want to say, 70s or 80s. Yeah, late um, 60s. Late 60s is when I first um, read him. And uh, there was definitely a big... Yeah, this interest. this coincides with the U.S. paperback. So uh, the U.S. paperback is a uh, 1960 publication, I believe. And then it spread and spread and spread because of that. Yeah. I thought it was just um, Spock singing that song about Bilbo. That's a good chicken and egg situation. There. <laughs> I, I imagine you're not getting Spock singing about Bilbo until you get the kind of explosion of popularity. I don't know. I don't think Leonard Nimoy was banging on any doors and being like, you better let me sing about Bilbo Baggins. I'm super into this. Uh, but maybe he was. I don't know. I don't know Leonard Nimoy. Um, but, uh, uh, so I, I just recently read Dying Earth, speaking of Vance, um, the, the collected Dying Earth. Um, and uh, another science fiction author who has also written fantasy that is also hugely influential on Dungeons and Dragons is Paul Anderson, uh, who I've also just finished. I just finished uh, The Broken Sword. Um, uh, you know, and that's definitely you can see that those are those are humanocentric. Uh, fantasy novels very akin to uh, early Dungeons and Dragons and those those worlds and, and it's, it, it would be it would be hard pressed to call Dungeons and Dragons humanocentric anymore uh, but it certainly started that way. There are many sword legends um, in fantasy and especially fantasy written by science fiction authors, but the Fred Saberhagen is just the best. It's so dark and so. Eerie, you know, oh man, that stuff is. I mean, it's weird. Hmm. Yeah, I recently picked up a bunch of it. That is not one I've read. Oh, they're great. They're really. They give you a different outlook on uh, human nature. I haven't read any of it, but I found a bunch of it secondhand for like a quarter a piece. So yeah, that's you bet I own it. Yeah. <laughs> So what is everybody's stance here? I want to hear everybody's stance here 
uh, and this is something I've argued about recently on the internet. I, I, I often argue with people on the internet uh, because because for. I'm a, I'm a weird shut in. Um, so, uh, what is your opinion on Tolkien's influence on Dungeons and Dragons and the uh, the amount therein of Tolkien's influence on Dungeons and Dragons? Lots. <laughs> Lots. <laughs> Lots. I mean, yes. Yes. Gygax said that Tolkien wasn't very influential, but he said that while he was being sued by the Tolkien estates. So <laughs> can't exactly trust him on that one. Well, so here's the thing. I kind of do trust him on that. And I only trust him in so far as it's not that influential on Gary Gygax. I don't trust him in so far that it's not that influential on Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. Um, and the reason I say this is because in the 1974 box set, and this statement was written in uh, 1973, uh, before the box set was actually, uh, you know, put into as many hands as it was. I mean, who knows exactly when these box sets first got out. But he has a list of fantasy authors that he says, and this is 1974, way before he ever thought he's going to get sued by anybody. Um of fantasy authors that would be like, if you are into these guys, this is the game for you. And those fantasy authors are Burroughs. They are DeCamp and Pratt, Fritz Lieber. Uh, uh, they are uh, Howard. They are, uh, uh, there's another one. What is, maybe not. Maybe that's it. Burroughs, Howard, DeCamp and Pratt, Fritz Lieber, and that's it. So those are the ones that he decided to mention specifically when he wrote his introduction to the game. That's very interesting to me because it leaves out some very clear influences on the game, uh, including Vance, including um, uh, 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 Paul Anderson, including J.R.R. Tolkien. I think it doesn't oh. matter how much uh, Gary Gygax uh, uh, went with Tolkien. All of the players went with Tolkien. They all mm -hmm. read Tolkien. They all got their ideas of elves and dwarfs from Tolkien, not actually from um, myths and legends. Um, and the the way D and D was early D and D was played was Middle Earthian. Exactly. I just opened because I have it over here, my copy of Playing the World, page 42. Uh, Gygax reported the addition of those fantasy rules to Chainmail as afterthought, but the publication of Chainmail was not the first place where Gygax announced its intentions to join fantasy fiction with Wargame. As far back as 68, Gygax solicited uh, uh, membership for details of a rumored Hobbit variant on diplomacy. Even before that, the Venerable War Games Inventors Guild had an interest documented in six, March of 68 in developing a Tolkien-based game derived from five, Battle of Five Armies. So, yeah, the whole thing, Tolkien is where we got the initial ideas for elves, dwarves, uh, hobbits, until he got sued about that, Uh and orcs and goblins. 
Well, I wouldn't say initial, but but I'm not making the argument that that D and D is not influenced by Dungeons Dragons. I I just am uh, standing by the argument that Gary Gygax isn't. Um, uh, Gary Gygax, I I don't know that uh, uh, there's any evidence that he's a very big Tolkien fan. In fact, I think he's been quoted to say he found him kind of boring. Um, but it's inarguable that the wargaming scene that D&D grew out of was entirely Tolkien-based. Because if you look at any of those early fantasy miniature lines, whether they be uh, Minifigs or Ral Partha or Heritage, they're all so clearly uh, making Tolkien miniatures, you know, all without a license, uh, except for Heritage. Eventually they got a license. But, uh, uh, you know, all those, the D-Fantastiques uh, Heritage line and the Minifigs, <laughs> that was actually called the Middle Earth line when it first released and had to get changed to <clears throat> Mythical Earth. Uh, you know, these are these are miniature lines to emulate um, not Dungeons and Dragons, but uh, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and specifically more often The Hobbit than Lord of the Rings. I don't know if it's just because the Battle of the Five Armies was a, uh, a immensely playable uh, scenario or what, but um, uh, it was a scenario that you could have multiple players. Mm-hmm. You, you could have uh, five five generals instead of you know two. Well, I mean, I would, I would certainly argue the the battle of of uh, yeah, Minas Tirith, uh, Pelennor Fields, uh, you know, pretty, uh, pretty easy to, to divide that up as well. But I, you know, I think maybe um, uh, it, it it's possibly because it felt more like a fantasy war game if you had a bunch of fantasy. Uh, characters, you know, if you had elves and dwarves and eagles and goblins and humans all fighting together, then now this is a fantasy thing. And and the 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 most represented fantasy creature uh, in any of the big battles in, in in Lord of the Rings are orcs. And and pretty much all the big battle scenes, it's a group of humans fighting a group of orcs. Um, so I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, I wasn't there. This is all just me. Uh, uh, theorizing and 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 wondering um i think you're on to it though yeah <laughs> I mean, minas tirith and, and Pelennor fields it's humans and orcs you don't have elves you don't have uh dwarves um peter jackson added the elves coming to help uh in his movies but that that those obviously were out when when all these wargaming conventions were mm-hmm. happening so, um, correct me on this. Uh, Tolkien invented hobbits, but there have always, throughout all legends, mythology, and all that, been little people. You know, so that's not really an invention; it's a word. But didn't Tolkien actually invent orcs? Kind of. Um, I read an article that was about this earlier. So, this. Uh, I'll cite my sources later, but uh, orcs, um, Tolkien used the words orcs and goblins interchangeably. Um, and the term orc came from Orcus, who was a minor Roman god of, uh, of death, of the underworld. Tolkien's most likely um, uh, progenitor for the word orc. And... Um, uh, is probably Beowulf. Orkneys is a mentioned uh, creature, and Beowulf probably some sort of ghoulish creature. 
Um, and uh, uh, the other progenitor to this creature uh, is um, uh, The Princess and the Goblin, which is a George MacDonald uh, uh, work of fiction. And the goblins in that, you can definitely see kind of the, the roots of Tolkien in those. Uh, Tolkien specifically changed from goblin to orc to avoid the connotations that goblin put in people's heads. Um, but uh, throughout his fiction, he refers to two classes, and there is the Snaga and the Uruk, which would be in their tongue, um, which we would call the Goblin and the Orc in, in our D&D games. The Snaga are smaller and sneakier and weedier, and the Uruk are bigger and tougher. And then there are the Uruk High, which is a third classification of, of Orc in Tolkien. Um, we would call half-orcs. You know, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I think closer in D and D terms is probably hobgoblin, right? Uh, you know, just the, this bigger, toughier uh, uh, monster. That half orc is is a a fine term to use for them, especially in the the world of Tolkien. But for a D and D term, I might shift to like a hobgoblin because it's really a a bigger, tougher monster, a soldier type uh, orc. Um, uh, but um, as far as like. The separation there actually is a line in The Hobbit where Bilbo is in the uh, Misty Mountains. He's under there. They're running from goblins. And there is a, just a brief mention of not running into bigger, stronger goblins called orcs, um, which I don't know if that was put in the original draft. The Hobbit actually went through a lot of changes due to Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, the original version of The Hobbit had a lot of textual changes uh, made to make it fit in with Lord of the Rings uh, in later uh, publications. Bills in the dark. Exactly. That's a big one. Cool. I'm glad to get my history straight on um, Tolkien-esque um, villains. And there is a 1920s novel that I, I've heard attributed to kind of like the concept of The Hobbit uh kind of archetype these kind of little people uh you know i mean uh i mean you could also uh look at laputians and and gulliver's travels and all that as sort of i'm obviously they're quite a bit smaller but uh you can see kind of the the shared ancestry i'm trying to find the name of the 1920s novel and it escapes me i have not yet read it i intend to but halflings were metaphorically the people of the English countryside and had, had the stereotypical traits of uh, those folksy, uh, you know, concerned only with themselves, uh, uh, not with the affairs of other people, all uh, um, type. That, that was Tolkien's... I wouldn't say caricature because that has negative connotations, but that was Tolkien's whole ideal with the with the halflings mm -hmm. with the hobbits. Yeah, yeah. The idea to me is that you are now viewing this narrative not from the viewpoint of the great hero, but of really you. Right? You, we're the hobbits when we read Lord of the Rings or when we read The Hobbit. Uh, you know, I'm nothing like Aragorn, even though he's the human in the narrative, right? Uh, I, I'm very little in common uh, with Aragorn, but I got a lot uh, uh, of Mary of, uh, and Pippin. I love eating and minding my own business. Yes. 
Those are like two of my favorite things. <laughs> Ting parties. There's nothing I like better than taking a bunch of mushrooms and smoking a bunch of weed and and uh, going on adventures in my head only. <laughs> <laughs> so the halflings were really from Yorkshire. <laughs> so I've been kind of out of this conversation because I have not read a lot of classic fantasy. It's something I'm working towards. I, I have read The Hobbit and I've read Fellowship, but I never read beyond that. It's on my list. Outrageous! Um, I know. You've read the Arthurian. Outrageous! I read, Mom mentioned it earlier, I have read The Once and Future King. Which is phenomenal, um, and I, I adore it to bits. Um, but mostly, I've been reading more modern fantasy because oh. I'm a lamo like that and read modern <laughs> things. Okay, it's the it's the marvelous land of snurgs, snurgs. That's what it's called, the marvelous land of snurgs. That's a great uh, name. Uh, an inspiration uh, for <coughs> hobbits. Snurgs are are very much like hobbits, apparently. And I have not read this. I really, 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 really want to. Uh, but yeah, uh, yeah, I, I certainly want to uh, look into it. But yeah, I, I can definitely see some of the similarities from what I can glean from just looking into it without reading it. Going back to Once and Future King, a quite strange novel that I read recently is called Once and Future, where Arthur's reincarnation is... I uh, this, if it's a, the same one I'm thinking of. Is Ari Helix, a lesbian refugee from a Muslim-coded planet who's fighting against an evil corporation. It's uh, the most woke book that ever did woke. It's a, absolutely <laughs> incredible. <laughs> Just because it's fucking wild. <laughs> <laughs> I love how they introduce the nightly elements, which is um, the Guinevere uh, is queen of the Renaissance Fair planet. It's it's so great. <laughs> <laughs> Contemporary... So that was that was the book that I famously apparently put on hold at my library before it came out and forgot that that had happened and knew nothing about it when it actually became available. And I got the email be like, "Hey, your this book was automatically checked out," and I was just like, "What is this?" So I went into it relatively blind, even though apparently at some point I saw it and read enough about it to decide that I wanted to read it and put it on hold. Um, but it was an interesting one to go in blind. It's it's certainly wild. <laughs> <laughs> uh, contemporary fantasy writers write really long series, multiple volume series, and mm -hmm. they, they have mastered the art of writing the fantasy page turner. I mean, narrative adventure it is. Um, and you just go from one chapter to the next to the next, and it's just so great. And, it's, and, and you know, it's not just Brandon Sanderson or Robert Jordan or Rick Riordan or, you know, I mean, there's this whole school of authors that write these mm -hmm. multiple volume adventures that are page turners. 
Don't even get me started on Brandon Sanderson. I could sing the praises of um, the uh, Emperor's Soul for for a month straight. Uh, that is basically my. That is a spicy meatball of a novel. <laughs> I have still, by Sanderson, only read the first two in the Mistborn uh, original trilogy. That's all I've read by Sanderson. I am halfway through Will of Time, so when I finish that up, I'll have more Sanderson under my belt. And obviously, I need to finish the Mistborn series. <laughs> To pitch Emperor's Soul to you, it's a short story about a forger who is given the task of a lifetime. She has to use her forging magic in order to create a fake soul for a comatose emperor before um, time runs out and she's executed by her captors. It is such a good novel. You don't uh, really need any context from mm -hmm. Sanders' other works to read it. Uh, it's just, yeah. it's so good. And that's what I really need to get into is some of his standalone stuff just to get a good variety done quickly. I just love the edge dancer. Sanderson is a, a great author. I love how he comes up with these imaginative and self-consistent magic systems. Uh -huh. um, once again, he does run into the problem of his books are so long that my ADD won't let me finish series, but uh, I love his short stories. I love Steelheart. Uh, his, his stuff's great. I got Skyward over here. Uh, that was mm -hmm. his science fiction one from this year. Uh Training to, training to be a, a pilot. So, one of my absolute favorite series of books that I read through as fast as I possibly could um, and didn't, didn't realize how much I was going to fall in love with them is the How to Train Your Dragon books. Uh, they are absolutely fantastic. And they were fantastic in the beginning of being just like, Fun, cute one-offs, you know, a lot of good 12-year-old humor mixed in with some uh, just fun fantasy Viking lore and non nonsense. Um, then around, like, book eight, I want to say, through the end of the series, so, like, the final four or five books, um, is, like, a self-contained arc, and it's really good. It was presented at the beginning to where you could read those books in any order and you wouldn't really be too confused. I would say that that is not the case in the, the last five books. There's definitely an arc that, that goes through those last five books um, that's well worth it and has really good messages about uh, small actions having big effects and, and kind of, you know, even the, even the little guy can make a big difference. And it's just overwhelmingly one of the best reading experiences I've had in my life. Okay. And the movies are, are pretty good too. The third one kind of was awful, but the rest of them were good. Hmm. <laughs> I feel like um, I really ought to plug my own work. I have the website sffshortstories.com 
And uh, besides uh, other people's work I feature on there, I also uh, publish my own super shorts on there, both fantasy and science fiction. And uh, when you write a super short, you kind of have to be deep into the genre, really rely on tropes a lot, and uh, mm -hmm. so that your audience immediately knows where you're at because you write stories that are sometimes less than a page long. I'm totally useless again. I haven't read. Yeah. I have not read any fantasy novels published after 1984. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, I I recently was digging for inspiration for my Warhammer game, and I went through uh, Troll Slayer and Skaven Slayer again. Hmm. Haven't read them. Sounds interesting. Uh, the Gotrek and Felix novels are basically what I'd call the platonic ideal of the Warhammer fantasy novel. Um, they follow a dwarf troll slayer, Gotrek, um, who is trying to get himself killed in some honorable death, and Felix, a uh, former... Uh, poet who was life was saved by Gotrek and who made a, a blood oath to follow him around and recount his glorious death that uh, never really came. There's still Gotrek survived the end of the Warhammer fantasy universe. Hmm. It's now voiced by Brian blessed. The original three novels were basically Warhammer fantasy roleplay sessions put together. After that, the series kind of became more bold and, and more heroic fantasy, but uh, uh, Troll Slayer and Skaven Slayer are just gritty, grimdark uh, crawls with decidedly mortal characters. Hmm. I've been reading the uh, Druss, the, the Legend series, and it's an interesting series of novels in that the sequels are, you know, 100 years later about the children of the people in the last book. Or the grandchildren. Well, I feel like we haven't talked about Terry Pratchett enough. <laughs> oh, I, I didn't want to be the first one to bring him up. <laughs> I will bring up Terry Pratchett, because Terry Pratchett. <laughs> we talked about Terry Pratchett. Good we talked omens. about good omens for like a few seconds. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell everybody my opinion of Terry Pratchett. He is the William Shakespeare of the 20th century. <laughs> <laughs> I yep. give it to the guy. He literally wrote a novel that explained uh, why his setting went from like Conan the Barbarian pastiche to more modern pastiche, uh, The Last Hero. Much missed, much lost. Mm -hmm. <sighs> love Guards, Guards. I love uh, <laughs> uh, the Death Books. I, I think everybody has their own little cluster of novels and Terry Pratchett that hold their heart. The books are definitely the ones I'm most nostalgic for because those are those were my entry point as a young girl. I was just like, oh, cool. Another young girl who's like super awesome. So Tiff Tiffany Chang. Yeah, the best. 
The the Steve. Wee Freeman, Wintersmith, yeah, that's the stuff. And the witches, I mean, Pratchett's just got it. Mm-hmm. I did the bees. I did the bees. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> no, he wrote equal rights because um, uh, people were thinking that he was a female author because he didn't have a photo on on the first two books, and uh, were s- slamming that. So he's just like, okay, I'm I'm a man, but what if I I did a book about gender roles in let me see when Equal Rights came out. Eighty-seven. Uh, the dude was ahead of his time, and also a machine in terms of how quickly he wrote. Yeah, and he retold all of the great stories, just like William Shakespeare. <laughs> He's always a fan of soul music and yeah, uh, soul the Monsters Regiment. <laughs> yeah. Just one after another. Fantastic. Every book. Every book. Yeah. Some of them so dark. Small Gods is so dark. You know, I mean, just, whoa. And who can write a character that's a piece of luggage? <laughs> <laughs> I've been very nervous because BDC America's uh, adapting him, and I'm, I'm reading some of the pre-release stuff, and I'm like, uh-uh. Did you read these books? Mm. Yeah, and Rincewind falls off the edge of the disc, and Atuan changes his direction and gets under Rincewind. <laughs> so Rincewind lands back on the disc. <laughs> yeah. I, the, uh, I, by the way, have a wood the, the of where, <laughs> uh, uh <laughs> I made well, uh, it. This yeah. is not my cow. And I guess, I guess we know whether Atuan's male or female. <laughs> this is not my cow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the best stuff ever written. The uh, the whole fact that soul music is is Blues Brothers. It's it's Blues Brothers. It's. <laughs> He really wrote that. <laughs> yep. Music with rocks in it. Mm. And that one guy, he's a little bit. Oh, the hawk. Yeah. <laughs> Buddy Holly. <laughs> the fact that all the, the wizards started rebelling because uh, they, they didn't even remember being young. So they were just like all getting leather jackets and uh, and greasing their hair up. Okay, for anyone listening to this podcast who hasn't read Terry Pratchett, now is the time. Yeah. Number one recommendation of the night. Mort is a really good entry point. The first book is not super consistent with what the later books are. So if you go in publication order, you might be turned off a little bit. I don't necessarily recommend against going in publication or, order, but remember that this world can be read in any order, and Mort is a really good entry point. Everybody likes that. Guards, guards. <laughs> <laughs> well, guards, guards is the the first of the Sandra yeah. Vine series, which is a fantastic series in Terry Pratchett world. Um, 
Also, I think that's uh, why Free Man I, is a good entry point for. I think a lot of people get turned off of Discworld because it's it's structured in such a weird way because of the amount of sub series that are within this bigger overarching universe that's created. Um, and I think a lot of people just get confused by it. But literally, you can pick up any Terry Pratchett book, and you're you're gonna find enjoyment out of it. And you're not going to be too lost. I mean, they're pretty much all written in a way that you're going to be fine. Even the ones in, in the, within the series um, mm -hmm. stand alone pretty well. And they're also so, like, uh, I reread Going Postal sometimes, and I'm just like, how did he know? <laughs> uh, the bad guy is literally Donald Trump. Uh <laughs> Tump Tower uh, is a con man who uh, uh, whose whole strategy is crashing businesses and then rebuying them for a song. Uh, it's it's literally Trump, and he knew he knew <laughs> Pratchett was filled with this righteous anger towards uh, uh, towards injustice in a way that you would want a paladin to be filled with righteous uh, anger. Only instead of a sword, he had a pimp and a voice that he wrote in that you probably just couldn't mm -hmm. match. He, he also, first and foremost, wrote for entertainment, which is the most important thing, is that all of his books are incredibly entertaining while also having good, solid messages. And funny. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forget whether it was D&D &D or Warhammer that he was contracted to write a book for and then it fell through for some reason. And I think about that a lot. I need to... <laughs> so, Just cry yourself to sleep at night of the book that never was. <laughs> I want to know. Is there a Discworld game? Is there yes. a role-playing game based on Discworld? Yes. I've heard it's not very good, but it exists. <laughs> There's a yeah, lot. Yeah, the thing is, like, when you look at these properties and try to gamify them, uh, the problem often occurs that... Uh, the, the issue is not all concepts are equally gameable. Right. Mm -hmm. So like Doctor Who is a, a good example where the Doctor Who is, is is fantastic thing to watch and it's fantastic narrative, but it's not a very gameable narrative because there is the problem of the Gallifreyan front man, right? Um, mm -hmm. that that causes some issues with this kind of concept of a group of people working together. Like really the most gameable concepts are probably uh superheroes, horror and fantasy. Those are probably, you know, the strongest gamified uh, genres. But when you take a work of fiction, even though it's a fantasy work of fiction, and try to gamify it, you sometimes run into problems because that sitting has its own rules uh, that were developed not to be gamed, right? They were just developed to be uh, a yeah. part of a narrative. I think the problem with this world is it has not rules <laughs> it's 
like it's like so absurd and pretty much anything can be thrown in there that it becomes the opposite of that to where you you might get into a lot of arguments and be like, why well, do this? And then be like, well, you can't do that. I was just like, well, why not? <laughs> the underlying premise behind Discworld is that anything in fantasy or mythology on Earth is true in Discworld. Mm. I, well, and so I am not uh, I am not very familiar with Discworld, and I have never played the Discworld RPG. It's GURPS based. Uh, I've not played it. I'm not a big GURPS player, uh, even though I've heard GURPS is fantastic. Every time I've looked at it, I was like, I don't know if that's for me. Um, I should give it a, a good college try at some point, but I've not done that yet. Um, my suggestion for people who want to take a narrative they love and, and game it is to find one of the most simple RPGs you can, whether it be mm-hmm. Rhesus or, or something like that, where there's just like, you kind of like, as long as you all know the concepts of the table, you'll be fine and, and, and play the game that way, as opposed to something that's hard codified. World is, um, is difficult to gamify because it's not a setting that is terribly unique, but it's a setting with sarcasm quotes on it. Mm. Um, the characters are aware that they run on a world that runs on narrativium, I think is the term that comes up. Mm-hmm. They know that a thousand and one chances always happen, or, or a million to one chances. There's a argument in Guards Guards where they were talking about the odds of an arrow hitting a dragon's weak point, you know, just out of uh, out of the Hobbit, um, and they decide to play their odds by blindfolding, making the archer stand on one foot, and uh, in general, well, sabotaging so they can get the odds right to a million to one. Mm-hmm. Aren't quite able to do it, but when the dragon attacks them, luckily there's a million to one shot they survive. So instead, they land on a toilet. Uh, Discworld is... Read Discworld, because it's really funny. (laughs) Uh, Discworld is like, um, to to bring in video games, Earthbound, or uh, Mm -hmm. under a more modern parlance, Undertale. Uh, It's... It's so hyper-beta. Yeah. It's... It's a setting with sarcasm quotes, is what I call it. The the tongue is so firmly ensconced in the cheek that sometimes it's hard to talk. So another one of my favorite authors, who I think is very easy to get to because he almost exclusively writes standalones as far as his novels go, is Neil Gaiman, who we have mentioned before. But I have read a wide selection of his work. Um, and The Ocean at the End of the Lane, which is a very short, dark fantasy uh, is a contender for my favorite book of all time. It is absolutely one of the 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 most gripping reads. Um, to where when you read it in its fantastical setting, um, it is dark and uncomfortable. But then you can also have a second read of it, to where you remove the fantastical elements and read it more as if it's a child's repressed memories and that they've made them fantastical in their young developing mind um and it is so dark and uncomfortable and i love it um that probably says some things about me but it is like 150 pages if that 
I read it and immediately reread it because I was so enthralled with it and I didn't want it to be over that fast. He enjoyed, um, cause he wrote a short story called a study in Emerald, which is his mm-hmm. take on uh, Sherlock Holmes. And it, it also got a comic book, I think. Uh, but it is absolutely amazing watching him twirl a combination of Sherlock Holmes and Lovecraft into this blender for a, for, for a short story and still make you come out going, whoa, what? Mm-hmm. I think one of his quotes that stuck with me the most um, is he was talking about the difference between writing uh, books for adults versus writing books for children. And he said he was often more selective and particular about his writing for children. Um, Not because he was trying to dumb it down or anything like that, but because adults read books very passively. They read them and then they kind of forget them. They never go back to them. You know, that's just kind of the typical nature. You know, he was talking about when writing something like American Gods. There's a lot of stuff that he understands could have been edited out, but he didn't really see the point in taking the time to to polish that more. It's just such a behemoth. And he was just like, there's a lot of things that are in that book just because I like them, but not because they really add anything to the story. But for his children's literature, he would edit and re-edit and re-edit. And every word he said in, in something like Coraline has intent and is meant to be there. Because children will read and reread and reread. And he says, that is valuable time that that children's dedicating to my book. And I want to make sure that every word is worthwhile. Um, so I thought that was just just an astounding thing for an author to come out and say is that he basically values the, the, the children that reads his books more than he evalu- values the adults who read his books. Um, and I just, I don't know. I really like Neil Gaiman. I thought that was a, a odd thing for an author to come out and say, basically. But that's that's the way he phrased it. My favorite Neil Gaiman quote is that he said, whenever Terry Pratchett sent him a letter and asked if he wanted to co-write Good Omens, he said that was the closest thing that would ever happen in his life to Michelangelo coming by and seeing if he wanted to paint a ceiling. <laughs> Uh, an author that I haven't read yet, but I know is also a big inspiration for Gaiman is Gene Wolfe. And I need to read some Gene Wolfe. I've read Gene Wolfe. Gene Wolfe is great. I have, like, he's prominently displayed on my shelf, even though I haven't read any. Like, I have, like, a little fantasy shrine <laughs> in my living room. It's got my How to Train Your Dragon books. It's got The Will of Time and Brandon Sanderson and Tolkien and Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. And then Gene Wolfe, because I had a little spot and I didn't know where to put what to put there. And Gene Wolfe seemed to just fit in the, the ones that I owned. He fits. He fits. Yeah. I did find the Will of Time companion today at Goodwill. Um, it is a beastly thing. <laughs> <laughs> it is as long yeah. it is as long as it, as the 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 like final book because it's on the shelf next to the final book and it is definitely as long as it um and i started flipping through it just kind of looking at it and i'm just like holy crap there is so much in that world let's see what else do i 
got here. <laughs> um, I, in terms of weird fantasy, um, a a book that comes to mind is um, Three Parts Dead by Max Gladstone. I've I haven't read anything else by this guy, but Three Parts Dead is just this wonderfully weird. Uh, um, I'd almost call it urban fantasy because it's it's not it's a it's a detective novel mm-hmm. where the murder person is a god. The main characters are a uh, magic student who supposedly was stripped of her magic when she failed school, but you know she uh, planned for that, and uh, a uh, priest of a fire god who is who was the murder victim, and the two of them are trying to figure out who could kill a god. It's so strange and so interesting. It, it gave me real Planescape vibes. Alright, so I guess just as a way to kind of uh, bookend this, but um, I'm going to put everybody on the spot uh, for the closing here and ask them to recommend one book. It doesn't necessarily have to be a favorite book. It could be an unknown. It could be a book that um, you've, your most recent read or whatever, but just recommend a book that hasn't been talked about yet. Um, I'll start. I'll start. Ooh, Dad has one. The best, <laughs> the best book ever written, Nova by Samuel R. Delaney. And after you read it, you'll understand why I said that. <laughs> <laughs> a Matter of Profit by Hilary Bell. Um, it's social science fiction. It's very, uh, very contemplative and interested in economics, but it's still one of the most, most, uh, interesting reads I've had, you know, in a, in a while. And it's stuck with me and it's been like a year since I've read it and I still think about it. The well at the world's end <laughs> by william morris uh it's an 1896 book written in kind of faux medieval language it's not necessarily an easy read um it's long and it's written in a faux medieval language uh, mm-hmm. uh for example on the next morning he arose and said to himself that whatever betid he would bide in the castle and the plain of abundance till the lady came and he went amongst the haymaking folk in the morning and ate his dinner with them and strove to be of good cheer and be like the carls and queens thought him merry company. Uh, so, um, but it's it's a fantastic book. Like it's it's not just like interesting historically. It's interesting. Uh, it's an interesting read uh, in and of itself, and full of metaphor and really uh, interesting stuff. William Morris is has a very uh, strong use of metaphor in his narrative uh, writing, and absolutely really devastating. Yeah, yeah, well, no, I mean, yep, there's parts, but I mean, (laughs) I don't know that it's absolutely devastating. I do think ultimately the book is a message of hope, but, um, uh, there, I mean, you can't have a message of hope without some, uh, uh, stuff happening that (laughs) requires a message of hope. Um, um, uh, but I mean, I remember like reading it and like, 
my brain started shifting into this medieval language. And I remember in my brain, my wife was traveling for work. And in my brain, I thought to myself, most be like my wife will return in the morn. Uh, <laughs> yikes! <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> That's not how people think. Uh, I also like that it also, it very often refers, uh, because Carl uh, is a term for a free person, you know, a landowning or a free person, somebody who's not a surfer or a servant. And so it'll be like, we have we have 300 strong Carls. And I was like, oh, no, I'm just one strong Carl. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got nothing you're on these guys. You're, you're outnumbered. <laughs> uh, so in the vein of our discussion on adaptations and upcoming adaptations and video game adaptations, I'm going to throw out the Witcher series. Uh, which is an odd series to read because not only is it a translated work, but it's also a work that starts off with like collections of short stories. Like the correct reading order is you read two books of short stories before you actually get into the series. Hmm. Um, it's a, it's an odd one. I've read the first collection of the short stories, which is called the last wish. Um, it's, it's really quest driven um fantasy uh in a lot of ways and it's i've heard it has some of the best character work um it has a wonderful uh partnership uh between your two main heroes your main hero and i guess the 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 sidekick if you want to go that way um very different very different from the uh video games uh but I believe the series is supposed to be more based on the books than the video games. I'm not, don't quote me on that, but I believe that the, the I've, I've heard that as well. Series coming up is supposed to be more based on the books. Um, I don't have the, the books, license for any of the video game stuff. Yeah. The books are repeatedly praised. Um, and I feel comfortable recommending that even though, I mean, practically what I know is I've read probably the weakest entry, which is the first collection of short stories. And I really enjoyed it and I'm really excited to get further into the series. So I'm going to throw that one out there. That is what I'm very likely to watch the adaptation first before I ever read it. If I ever read it, but I, I'm going to watch that Netflix show. It's right there. I can click on it. Yeah. You can't do that I with mean, a book. You can't click a book. <laughs> I mean, you can, but nothing happens. <laughs> I, click books, this. I click books on Overdrive the all the time. Think... They end up on my Kindle. Seem to be taking stuff from, the first and second short story collections and parts of the first of the Witcher saga novels. Um, I, I actually have read up to the second of the full novels. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. To be honest, they don't look like my jam. Uh, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of be like in the morn in those books. <laughs> <laughs> That's because it was translated. <laughs> <laughs> oh man <laughs> all right well we're gonna we're gonna wrap this episode up uh i'm sure dad's gonna have every last book that we mentioned listed <laughs> in the show notes so you'll have a lovely reading list he's not gonna miss a single one i want to uh, thank best in danger for uh uh joining in for all of the great uh cover art that he posted yeah, thanks, to make my job thanks. easy for adding to my list of books to read because <laughs> I've got a pad over here with let's see one two three four seven seven books of my never-ending TBR 
that you've added to. So thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. We're going to call that. Oh, mom, mom brought up Douglas Adams. Douglas Adams is good too. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> All right. You can't just throw Douglas Adams at the very end, Mom. We're going to be here another hour. <laughs> You have been listening to the Related to Geeks podcast, recorded November 4th, 2019, on the Gamer Plus Inspired Unreality Open Game Chat, held at Tanker's Tavern on Discord. For more about our geeky family, visit relatedtogeeks.com. For more information about Inspired Unreality, join Gamer Plus, a social network for gamers, at gamerplus.org. The music for this show is Wintersmith by Harry Larry. Based on the, the novel by Terry Pratchett. Comes at the end of the fall, painting windows and dropping light. The animals hide when they hear his call. So cold in the middle of the night. So cold in the middle of the night. I didn't know there was another Morris dance when the witch took me up on the problem is i'm a real drag yeah <laughs> and so like we'll read this book that everybody loves and i'll be like here's why this is garbage <laughs> and, and that's, that's no fun fine. that's fine but uh, you can you have the right to be wrong <laughs> i am you, perfectly comfortable for season eight of game of thrones for so long man we know you have the right to be wrong <laughs> i i am so comfortable being the only person that knows i'm right it's fine for me <laughs> i'm fine with a slew of faces telling me i'm incorrect and being like nah i'm pretty sure i got this uh <laughs> Clubs. No, I mean, the opposite episode where there's a book that everybody hates and Carl is just like, it's the oh, best yeah. thing ever. <laughs> Most like my wife will be here in the morn. <laughs> like, what? How can you not jive on these dope pros? <laughs> <laughs>